You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. I hope you're enjoying the first day of lockdown. How are you, Jordan? I'm pretty all right. It's really quite a dubious honour being the first people on air for this. Um, You know, we're returning to a sudden snap lockdown. Um, granted, I'm sure the heavy session last night probably had some fun given they went from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going we're gonna to kick off uh, yeah. um, straight away. We've got uh, Sister Susan Connolly on the line. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. G'day, Susan. How are you? Hey, Susan. Oh, I'm good, Annie. Good, Annie. And hello there. Yes. Yeah, good. yeah. And Jordan's with me. Yes, of course. <laughs> oh, Jordan. Thanks, Jordan. Not a problem. Yeah. Now, the reason good, for Jordan. why we're catching up with uh, you is because there's been... Uh, one, we want people to remember that the uh, Bernard Kaliri case is on and there's been a few developments. So I, yes, could yes. you want to explain some th- some of these issues to our yes, listeners? Yes, for sure, yes. Now, look, um, your listeners would know that... Uh, a man named uh, Witness Kay, uh, one of our spies, and his lawyer Bernard Kaleri are under prosecution for being accused of ma- uh, making known the fact that Australia spied on our World War II ally, Timor-Leste. And uh, uh, they, these men were charged in May of 2018, and the whole thing has been grinding on in the ACT court since. We're up to 45 hearings plus. I think I've missed out a few in my counting. Hmm. Now, last uh, week, there was, Witness K had a hearing, and if people write to their politicians, uh, they'll be told, um, oh, you know, Witness K is going to plead guilty. Well, that's not exactly quite right. Maybe he may plead guilty to something. Nobody really knows what he's pleaded guilty to. That's why his hearing last on the uh, 3rd of February was um, adjourned again, again, again to the 29th of March. But the big news at the moment is Witness K's lawyer, Bernard Kaleri. Now, Bernard, uh, what a wonderful, uh, upstanding man. He used to be the Attorney-General of the ACT. Uh, last year, uh, the judge of the trial has ordered that much of the evidence that is to be given in his trial has to be kept very, very secret. So secret that the judges... Uh, have to have special safes installed in their offices and their staff given special instruction about keeping of all this material safe. Now, Bernard's legal team is appealing against this ruling. So the latest thing is about this is the appeal that's coming up. Now, as it happens, we've probably all heard of uh, Brett Walker, one of Australia's, if not the top 
lawyer in Australia, one of them. He is now operating on Bernard's team and we're all terribly pleased about that. But, you know, it was towards the end of December last year that um, um, he... Um, I don't know the ins and outs of why you've got to ask Attorney-General, but he seems to have power over all this. And the Attorney-General's department has only just very, very recently allowed this to happen, which means yet more delay, months of delay, without um, 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 admitting this man to the defence team. Now, they're, they're banging on about, oh, you know, this man has to be given special... This man used to be the independent monitor of national security information. One would think he would know about secret material, but no, it all has to be done very, very carefully because whatever it is that is being kept secret, and this is what is exercising my mind at the moment, what on earth in this trial is so secret that it has to have all this blanket of national security? Look, I'm just wondering... Now, look, do you mind if I just think out loud to your good listeners? They might think too. Under what threat are Australians about the information about the spying on Timor, other than we spied on one of the most impoverished nations on the earth and we should be hanging our heads in shame? Oh, and also but, we were spying for a corporation. And there's, there's... Oh, well, oh, yes, but of course we have to look after our corporations, don't we? Woodside. And there's no yeah. reason that there would be secret evidence in the first place if the government could come out and say, we didn't do anything, here's the proof. You know, that's not the kind of thing that would be hidden behind closed doors. Well, yes, well, there's no in sense theory. of anybody admitting anything here. That this is this is right. Mm. But like, I'm I'm just wondering, uh, like, it was so stupid, really, to um, not only do the spying to start with, but um, to to prosecute these men because it's blown the whole thing internationally. Everybody knows now that Australia spied on Timor. And look, I'm, I'm, I'm writing something about Timor. We knew a great deal about the, Timor, the Indonesian invasion of Timor, far more than has been let on. We knew far more about what was going on in the occupation. Maybe it's something to do with that. Maybe we've been spying on someone else. What else have we been doing in the Pacific or you know, with other impoverished nations? Yeah, but in uh, a way, there Susan, is... there's, this, there's something else too. I mean, this is a grinding process for the individual, Bernard Cleary. And if you think about it, he actually is a very well-placed uh, well for uh, observing and being able to understand the uh, meaning uh, of the government's behaviour. Right, so he's, he's yes. because of his experience and his contacts, really, and in a way, by having a court case of this sort, it means that he's continually focused on self-preservation. In fact, I mean, because yes. you know, it's that business of uh, corporations may be uh, wrong, but they've got a big purse, so therefore they crush all the small players. With yes. their big purse. Precisely. Now, this is another theory, of course, but um, given that Australia, mm, do you want to say but, something? Yeah. No, no. It was just there are so you're, you're right, Annie and Jordan. There are so many strings to this. There's also the reputations of highly placed 
past coalition members, John Howard and Alexander Downer. Mm. I mean, these are the people who ordered this. Yeah. And there, there's the status of Woodside as a major uh, Australian company. There's also the whole um, thing of vindictiveness. These men have t- told the truth and Australia is in a very bad light. And there's also, it's a warning. Who else would have the courage now to come out and say, I, I reckon there would be some Australians who would, even though they... But this is the cost, the cost to your 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 uh, income. Bernard Caleri's on his uppers, really. Uh, and uh, they're t- trashing your reputation. Uh, um, uh, look, look at the... Look at the um, could just imagine the pressure on his family. Just imagine this, especially with a name like Caleri. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. You know the, what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do know, do know what you mean. On the other side of this, this is a, a real window into the fragility of Australia's democracy, isn't it? I mean, held, being held to ransom by Christian Porter, who is... I mean, you know, the pre- oppressed, uh, preceded by George Brandis. Who didn't? Who decided not to bring the prosecutions? <laughs> mm. Why Christian Porter did this, we wouldn't know. But I mean, he's already tarnished. Is it? I mean, that's obvious. But um, you know, like the, the whole question of China also comes in here. I, I mean, Australia has been so stupid about Timor. After the look, the World War Two story, uh, friends, we're coming up to the nineteenth of February, which is the seventy ninth anniversary of the bombing of. Darwin, but it's also the 79th anniversary of the bombing of Dili and the beginning of the four-year Japanese occupation of that little place. And the Japanese only went there because the Australians went there two months before, breaking Portuguese neutrality. Now, we know the story, I hope, how the Timorese sided with the Australians and fed them and clothed them and nursed them and guided them. And then when we pulled out a year later, they were left to the mercy of the Japanese. At least 40,000 dead in reprisals. These are the people that we spied on. Mm. Like it, may, it, it, it is so embarrassing. But then following that, wouldn't you think out of a sense of obligation or something, I mean, after all, we dropped leaflets all over Timor saying, your friends do not forget you, but mm. we forgot them to the extent that when the Timorese government put out tenders to build their roads, who came in? China. Mm. Who built the President's Palace? China. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is an ongoing ongoing, um, issue that uh, a lot of people have been talking about. You know, if Australia was serious, then we'd actually do some heavy lifting in the area instead of bleating about... Is it like a few mm. spots? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Twenty scholarships a year. Give me a break. Well, uh, oh. It leads me to say that they're cheap chiselers, Susan. <laughs> they what? Sorry, I'm cheap, cheap chiselers. Oh, this is right. Yes, it's it's really it's disgraceful. But it's up to us. There are so many Australians for whom this is so wrong. Well, we've got to get up and do something about it. I can tell you what uh, some of your uh, look. If you go to the website uh, www BernardCaleriSupporters.org. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you you go to the Be a Supporter um, section, you scroll down, you might like to give a bit of money to help him, but the thing is there's a petition 
down the bottom. Now, it's got 55,000 signatures already, and you could latch onto that. And look, it's been going for a while, so if, you're, if you've already signed it, don't worry, sign it again, because... It'll recognise your signature and you, 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 you can't sign twice, if you know what I mean? Yeah. It's OK to have another go uh, because sometimes, you know, you sign a petition to forget what you've signed. So uh, have a go. BernardCalerySupporters.org. C-O-L-L-A-E-R-Y. Bernard Caleri Supporters. Thanks very Thanks much. For... Thanks for your time, Susan. That'd be so. Look, Jordan, good on you. And Annie, look, you're fantastic down there in CCR. And our hearts, of course, are with the Victorians again. So difficult, but, you know, it's got to be done. So hard. So hard. Thanks, mate. Okay. Okay. Have a good day. Thank you. They are also allowed to break into your phone if they have a reason to do so. And what we end up with is a surveillance state. What we end up with is multiple government agencies that have legal powers to surveil you when you have not been proven guilty. The underlying tenet of Western law is that you are innocent until proven guilty. What we're moving to is suspicion is enough to take away rights in order to build a case towards guilt. And that's not a legal framework that we agreed to. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377.
So if you really love me, say yes. And if you don't, dear, confess. But please don't tell me. A blast from the past, a stiletto. Very it's a good nice. choice. Yeah, really very lovely nice. done. Yeah, very nice. Um, we're uh, buzzing along on this uh, first day of hard lockdown in Victoria. Another five days of it, and uh, we've uh, got Margaret Pistorius on the line. She's uh, part of a group of members of the Quaker and Catholic communities who were had the temerity to shut down a Pakemba weapons factory in Brisbane last week. Um, g'day, Margaret. How are you? G'day, Margaret. Hey, Annie. Yeah. Can you explain to our listeners why you guys took this direct action? Yes, well, Naya is a big company that's flush with money. You know, it's not as big as the multinational companies it works with. It's not as big as Ryan Mittal, its German partner, but it is certainly heading that way. It's managed to build two new factories in the last four years, one at Miribra and one at Benalla. Benalla, the old Benalla uh, site of the Benalla Women's Peace Camp, uh, has come to our attention again as it grows with the God, that's ironic, uh, isn't it? river of money flowing from the public purse. Yeah, that's talk about um, insult to injury. Well, yes, Naira is a munitions uh, uh, supplier, and they're not only supplying to the Australian market, which they are now doing with massive contracts, but they are looking to supply to export. And when, when we say in Australia to export, it's a little bit hard to know what that means because there's absolutely no information about who they're exporting. You have to sort of go to the overseas trades and check out the trade list and see who's turning up to these conferences to figure out who they're exporting to. But we assume that given that their partner is Ryan Natal, that one of their major partners is going to be Indonesia, which is, of course, committing massive human rights abuses at the moment in West Papua, where you know a number of our friends live and come from. Uh, you know, the West Papuan situation is becoming dire. The militarisation is massive. And we know the Indonesians are killing West Papuans with munitions. Are you suspecting any connection with uh, Myanmar at the moment by any chance? It doesn't look like Ryan Mittal is in Myanmar. I've had a quick look. Um, but we wouldn't be surprised if, my, if munitions aren't flowing one way or another. I mean... One of the ways that Australia does it is, of course, is to set up subsidiary companies in different places, including the United States. And the United States is in itself one of the world's uh, biggest human rights abusers. I know they like to think of them as the, the great policemen of everybody, but really, you know, they have managed to bomb cities to smithereens with their product, yep. including, uh, you know, um, Boeing... This, you know, there's evidence in Yemen of 
Boeing guided missile systems and and bombs there. You know? But Boeing really is you know aviation for war crimes is Boeing. So I mean, this so, is this is uh, keeping the world on a continual war footing, so that corporations and certain certain governments uh, um, keep a uh, hold on the reins of uh, power within the communities. Well, the corporations know that that weapons, the defence industries, is one of the surest ways to become flushed with money. Yep. And if they can figure out how to plug their people into the parliamentary system, they can have an endless supply because, um, well, there's no limit, really, you know, and this, we see this in the US where up to 50% of their gross national product is on things to do with the military. In Australia, we're heading to 2%, um, and they're really, really, really pushing to 2%, uh, and part of this $270 billion that's being spent at the moment, though, puts it well over 2%, because it's left this huge 10-year uh, injection into, uh, yeah, well, lots of new factories. There's yeah, factories yeah, going yeah. up in Vanilla, in, um, you know, every, every state is buying... For a bit of the military money. Yeah, this is this was the one of the Morrison government's, uh, the LNP government federally's uh, announcements before COVID started, which was this idea of retooling a whole range of factories to contribute to create mili- military equipment. Yeah, and something like BAE in in Adelaide is one of the, you know, it's a significantly highly unionised company, uh, BAE, and yet it sells directly illegally to Saudi Arabia, not from not from the not from the Adelaide company, but from its parent company. But these companies are the same companies. They they tried to sort of separate themselves by adding Australia on the end, but Australia is just a colonial uh, outpost of the franchise. Yeah, yeah, it's BAE Systems. So that's that's long been an international partner um, in in this sort of um, well, flagrant abuse of human rights. Um, yeah, fascinating stuff. Look, some strange bedfellows getting involved in this. I mean, Catholic communities working alongside trade unionists and um, uh, even you know anti-war, um, you know, classic. Quakers. Yeah, yeah, Quakers. Um, what do you make of all this? What, like, it, it's a couple of strange communities coming together, isn't it? Well, no, no. I've been working with the Catholic workers and the Quakers for twenty years. You know, we moved, we worked together right through the last twenty years of together wars. We went to Pine Gap together. We went to Shoalwater Bay to stop the U.S. coming coming through. I mean, our concern is that nobody else is joining us, and that. Um, but you know, I'm also part of Wage Peace, so we are building a movement, and we've got land forces coming up. And land forces is a massive uh, land or army based weapons trading um, uh, expo. And that expo is going to have 270 people, and we, with the Quakers, are trying to shut that down. Where's that um, expo happening? Free, that's in Brisbane, okay. uh, the first to third of May. But we're going to start, you know, the kick off on the 28th of uh, 20. Sorry, the first to third of June, but we're going to kick up off on the 28th of May, and we're inviting people uh, to join us here in Brisbane. I'm sorry about the lockdown or the borders or whatever, but we're still inviting people to join us here in Brisbane 
come come out of the come out of the state for a little while and um, look to disrupt land forces. And we have a website now at disruptlandforces.com. We might be Catholics, we might be Quakers, but we are looking to seriously disrupt uh, this. Uh, evil business that is such a waste of intellectual capacity mm. and uh, and a waste of our um, uh, our, our resource, the, the the human and you know physical money that we the, the physical resources that we make in this uh, in this country. You know, so much of it is going to this uh, you know disgusting and wasteful and uh, business of building weapons to kill people uh, in Indonesia in the in the Indo-Pacific area to maintain the U.S. hegemony there—it's very problematic. Oh, it's yeah, also yeah. The, the you know the tying together of our economy as someone uh, with war, as someone pointed out, you really don't want uh, everybody to be upset when there's uh, an outbreak of peace. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. So these these companies um, uh, are vying for war, and they're inside the prime minister's office. Office. They're inside the COVID committee. They're inside the state government offices. They have their people everywhere. Just like coal uh, weapons, too, have their people everywhere. And you can see them move in and out of the industry. Someone like Christopher Pine is the head of the advisory committee of this company that we blockaded for an hour the other day. We stopped the cars going in for an hour. We um, we got in front of those gates and we stopped the early morning traffic. And, of course, they had big gates because they're a munitions company. So there weren't a lot of actually alternative ways in. And Pine, Christopher Pine, who you know is much hated by the community, mm. he is the president of their or the chair of their advisory committee. Basically, he's come out of the parliament where he's set up this system. He's set up this um, steel-based engineering uh, manufacturing sort of network in Australia. Um, And now he advises to the companies that he got contracts to um, while he was in the parliament. So this is a sort of type of soft corruption. There's nothing explicitly illegal about it, but we get to see that the parliament is actually made up of the corporation's people and they just move in and out over time. The system, of course, was set up by Kim Beasley. He's the godfather. He went over to Australia. He was a Labor man. He set the system up to start with. He was handling it for for a long time. He went to be ambassador of the US. Bomber Beasley! Bomber Beasley came back to be the president of Lockheed Martin, the biggest um, arms company in the world, Australian Lockheed Martin. He was in that presidential position for some time, and then he went to be governor of of Western Australia, where he is now, opening weapons factories and opening weapons projects. Um, That's his thing. And and I have to say again, each of the states are vying for this business. Um, uh, Melbourne has armoured factory at... Uh, Victoria has an armoured vehicle factory there at Benalla and mm. also at, at Bendigo and mm. they have a munitions factory and Talis is very important there in uh, Victoria. And they, Talis got the contracts uh, at Bendigo and Talis has the contracts at Benalla and Talis, you know, you know, at, at Bendigo they built an extra 250 armoured vehicles just sort of to keep jobs and it's like some massive, you know, amount of money that they could have kept jobs for like you know a tenth the amount of money that they did. The the, the industry is flush 
with our public money just moving straight into the into the private purse of these corporations. Thank you for talking to us, Margaret. And let's hope people will pack their bags and go up to Brisbane in May to support. Yeah, the totally. Sounds like one to watch. We'll yeah. look after you. We'll look after you. We'll host you. We'll find you a place to stay. We'll, um, you know, bring an action, bring an action group. And, you know, we'll help you get up that tripod. And what's the uh, webpage again? It's disruptlandforces.org. Thanks, mate. And you can also come through wagepeaceau.org. Yeah, wage peace. Fabulous term. Yeah, we're going to wage peace. (laughs) See you later, Margie. See you later. Bye. Five, four, three, two, one. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Hello, this is Virginia from the 3CR Garden Show. We are back live to the airwaves every Sunday from 7.30 to 9.15. There are some changes. Sadly, Pam has retired at the Garden Show and will be sorely missed. But Stephen and I are excited to be hosting the show and we have many old favourites and some new voices. So tune in for the usual fabulous gardening advice. 855 on the AM dial. 3CR Digital or 3cr.org.au Every Sunday from 7.30 to 9.15 COVID permitting Look forward to your company Cheers back on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Jordan and uh, you might be aware that uh, on the uh, 10th of February there was the uh, second uh, instalment of the Chris Breen incitement case Mm. Um, and uh, David who's part of RAC is uh, actually just on the phone now. Uh, G'day David, how are you doing? I'm not too bad thanks, a lovely lockdown morning. (laughs) Yeah, I know. 
Unbelievable. Yeah, surreal situation. But here we are. Um, do you want to give us a rundown on uh, where we're at with the uh, Chris Breen case in particular? Yeah, uh, just to remind people of the basics, Chris Breen is uh, an activist with the Refugee Action Collective. Um, he's also a teacher and a unionist. Um, he was arrested on April the 10th last year in his home um, and charged with incitement. And the incitement was posting a Facebook event uh, which encouraged people to get in their cars in a COVID-safe way and drive around the Mantra Hotel in Preston to uh, show support for the refugees who were inside. Um, the first court appearance back on January the 27th, we heard from the police and then we heard from Chris. And then last Wednesday, as you mentioned, um, the court case was back on. This time, um, the entire court case was hearing from Moz. A uh, refugee that everybody knows very well, Mustafa Zimitabar. Um, and Moz was a witness um, for the afternoon session. It, uh, it dragged on because um, the lawyers spent a lot of time arguing with each other uh, while Moz was out of the room. Um, but what we heard from Moz was that um, not only life for the refugees in the mantra uh, was absolutely terrible, um, and, of course, people will remember they were moved to the Park Hotel in Carlton just before Christmas. But he also gave evidence that the, the protest um, uh, had a, a big psychological impact on the refugees. It was, really, it was really good for them to be able to look out and see supporters through the window. So it took uh, quite a long time for that evidence to be given and for the legal shenanigans to take place. But that is essentially what happened on Wednesday. And then they ran out of time. So uh, the magistrate has adjourned the case until Wednesday, March the 17th, at 10 o'clock in the morning. And what will happen on, the mar on March the 17th is that the lawyers for prosecution and defence will essentially have a legal, um, a legal debate over what is incitement under Victorian law, what it takes to prove incitement. Uh, so all that legal type stuff. Uh, they'll be putting in written submissions. By all accounts, they disagree uh, very substantially. Um, and they've got time to actually put their arguments and counter-arguments to the magistrate. I would assume, going on uh, past experience, that she will not rule immediately. She will probably go away and uh, consider the arguments and the evidence. So there's a very good chance that Chris will be back in court for a fourth time to hear the verdict. But that's just me guessing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I listened to the January the 27th because uh, the uh, the magistrate's court uh, has uh, the capacity to allow you to zoom in and watch the whole and listen to the whole lot. So that's pretty fascinating in itself. But the magistrate was uh, quite um, <laughs> a little bit annoyed that it was being drawn out like a nougat chew. <laughs> she, she certainly was, and she was pretty exasperated on Wednesday as well. Uh, and as Chris's lawyer pointed out, the whole thing has gone on much longer than needed because the prosecution called a police witness to say things which were already pretty much in the agreed facts. The agreed facts are pretty substantial. Um, Chris doesn't deny being in rack. He doesn't deny that the protest took place. He doesn't deny that he posted the Facebook event. That really isn't in question. Uh, but the, 
the prosecution made the whole process much uh, more laborious than was needed by calling a police witness. So the defence had to call Chris in order to rebut what the police said, and 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 on and on we go. Um, it doesn't help as well that in my entirely unprofessional opinion, the prosecutor is not doing a very good job. Doesn't mean that Chris will be found um, innocent. Unfortunately, that doesn't guarantee it. But the prosecutor is fairly incompetent. The one thing he is. Oh, not, just, I'm not sure you should say that. <laughs> um, well, yeah, as, I, as an unprofessional I, opinion. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't think I would hire him to do legal work for me. Let's put it like, like that. I was going to say, I was going to pay him a compliment. The one thing he avoided doing was turning on the cat filter. So he, he was there in person all the way through, unlike that uh, lawyer in America who appeared as a cat on a Zoom on a Zoom hearing. Wow, that's really, really awful. <laughs> that's really uh, disrespectful. Um, mm. It is interesting to see the difference between the arguments uh, and the feeling on the street regarding uh, the issues of the uh, demonstration and the way it is uh, um, teased out in a court situation, isn't it? It's it's not quite the same uh, issue it feels. Yes, I mean, inside the court, uh, I think, in my unprofessional opinion, I think the argument will pivot around whether uh, the car convoy was an act of care and compassion and therefore was permitted under the Chief Health Officer's directions and therefore no crime was committed and therefore Chris didn't incite a crime. I think that's what's going to work its way through, for better or worse, inside the court. And we should say, whoever loses, it's very clear they will be off to the Supreme Court with an appeal. Both sides are taking this very, very seriously because if Chris loses, it's not just a blow to him, but it will almost certainly signal uh, the police using incitement charges in a lot of different ways against a lot of different activists, union activists, climate activists, um, anybody who basically organises a protest that the cops don't feel happy with, will run the risk of an incitement charge. And the police are also very keen to establish their, um, their, their political licence to use the incitement charge. So if Chris wins, they will go to the Supreme Court. So this saga will run a long way. But outside the court, the argument that Rack is putting and has been very well received um, uh, by uh, those supporting the defence campaign is that it's not a crime to show solidarity with refugees that it was a COVID-safe protest, everybody was in their cars, at a time when actually you could go shopping without a mask on um, back in April last year. So actually people were safer in their cars than they were going to Bunnings or Big W to do some, to do some shopping, um, that it is um, legitimate to, to protest because the refugees themselves were at risk of COVID. So rather than postponing the protest till the COVID was over, COVID made the protest even more important because let's remember those men, 60, 65 men locked up in the mantra, all had and continue to have health problems. That's why they were brought mm. to this country uh, under the Medivac legislation. Um, and they were trapped inside essentially a prison where they had no access to um, the, the outside and, and fresh air, but where casual and under, undoubtedly underpaid, undertrained security guards were coming through in shift changes 
um, every, every day with the potential of bringing the virus into the hotel. It was a matter of urgency that we protested because those uh, refugees were at um, particular risk. That's, a, that's should... a very compelling but... argument, absolutely. Yeah, but, but the interesting, the thing about uh, incitement, uh, the issue of incitement, you know, so the police say, we don't want you to have this, uh, this particular demonstration, and uh, then it's called... Uh, by the inside, it's actually a, a sort of a catch twenty two situation here, isn't it? Uh, you've got a political standpoint, and then the uh, the uh, strong arm of the government, which is the police, is the one who's being who's making the decision about if you're inciting. That's the bit that's extremely uh, dubious, isn't it? It is dubious, and it also has the potential. Uh, to have a chilling effect on, on protest because if you're in, I don't know, a local environmental group and you're planning to, I don't know, block, blockade at the entrance to the forest over, over logging, who's going to be brave enough to post a Facebook event um, because there's a, you know, if Chris is found guilty, it, it will increase the probability that the police will come knocking on your door and arrest you for inciting that protest. What are the um, um, what are the uh, outcomes for a person who is? Uh, uh, and people have to remember that this is uh, unusual. This has not been done before. Yeah. People haven't been uh, said to be inciting a political protest in this sense, right? Um, yeah. And so. What are the outcomes for a person who does actually get uh, uh, found guilty? Yes, you're right. It's a, it's a very sort of unknown and underused element of the 1958 Crimes Act. Um, I'm not sure whether it's ever been used, and that I think somebody um, in the you know, amongst the prosecutors thumbed through the act and sort of came across this and went, "You beauty, we can use this," and that's why they're keen to to, get, to establish it. The penalty, as I understand it, for if you are found guilty of incitement, is the same penalty as would be imposed on the person committing the act that you are inciting. So I hope that makes sense. So in this instance, the people who took part in the car convoy were bailed up by the police, and 30 of them were issued with fines for $1,652. Now, nearly all of those people are contesting those fines, and that's another part of the RAC defence campaign that it hasn't really um, uh, uh, got underway yet because those cases aren't being heard. Um, but Chris, Chris's fine, uh, Chris's penalty would be $1,652. Now, by itself, that's not the biggest deal in the world. We can have a whip around and pay the fine. But obviously, he would have um, a criminal conviction and he's a teacher. It would raise question marks about his ability to do his job. But also, uh, it it would um, make it easier for the police to bring charges in different circumstances where the penalties may be much more substantial. I've got no idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll say, David, it's interesting to me because uh, this is the kind of law that they used to use in England for people who called a strike over uh, labour relations. You know, workers weren't allowed to withdraw their labour. Yes, and I, I certainly remember, um, being from England myself, um, that there was quite a pattern of the police bringing conspiracy charges 
um, uh, against activists. And conspiracy, you know, wasn't about the sort of the wacky right-wing stuff that we hear about, you know, around Donald Trump. By conspiracy, they just meant two or more people basically coming up with a plan, um, which was a, a very difficult charge to, to beat because all activity involves a degree of planning. So, yeah, the cops are looking for something which they can basically bash us over the head with, which is why this cut case is pivotal. The defence um, campaign, Rackus in Running, has been uh, very widely supported. There are 11 members of parliament, state and federal, who are supporting the campaign to drop the charge. There are seven unions, uh, and uh, I'd really like to uh, thank the unions for their support. I mean, they're clearly under the gun if uh, incitement becomes uh, an issue. When Chris was uh, first in court, we had a solidarity rally of about 60 people outside the court, and that included um, flags and banners and speakers from the National Tertiary Education Union, from the Australian Education Union, the Health and Community Services Union, and a solidarity message from the Maritime Union. Uh, on Wednesday, we weren't able to mobilise the same numbers at such short notice, but there was um, the sub-branch banner from Chris's own uh, branch, uh, sub-branch of the Australian Education Union, and we also had a banner there from the CFMEU Construction Division, which is another supporter of the campaign. And, of course, there are dozens of other organisations and hundreds of other individuals. If people go to the, the RAC site, they can find the details of the campaign and they can add their name. Thanks, David. See you later. G'day. My name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. Hello, I'm Duncan Graham and this is Over the Wall. Today... We resume our conversation with Josh Cullinan of the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union about casual work, attempts to break up the CFMMU, and the attack on the Better Off Overall Test. Last December, I spoke with Josh Cullinan of RAFWU. At the time, a raft of coalition-led industrial relations reform had just been announced. All these issues are still alive in Canberra. Just this week, a skirmish broke out between Anthony Albanese and Christian Porter on potential reforms to casual work. The Parliament is yet to deal with the Industrial Relations Omnibus Bill, which deals with several of the issues we spoke about. There's a lot to cover, so let's roll the tape. I work in a fruit shop. I'm surrounded by young casuals who are convinced that they're in a better position than if they were permanent. So I'm often advising particular employees that they should consider permanency and try to explain the maths to them and other things. So there's an uphill battle just to get young workers in the mindset that permanency is a desired outcome. Do you find the same thing? We do have a group of workers that have a much greater enjoyment of the 25% loading and can't see beyond how that might work for them. 
with a reduced salary. They don't see that they're ever going to benefit from any redundancy rights. They don't see any benefit from any personal leave or sick leave that they can see themselves using. And the annual leave structure, whilst it's of interest to them, it doesn't offset the 25% loading. But it needs to be understood in the context of our sectors in retail and fast food, where the vast majority of large-scale employers have had massively weakened part-time arrangements under old SDA deals. So, for example, at McDonald's, until we got rid of the old deal in February of this year, for the last decade, part-time workers have been having their roster issued to them each week. They didn't have set shifts or a set roster that they worked to. So for them, they just haven't had the benefit of those kinds of structures where you can plan your life much more easily than would otherwise occur. So yes, we do come across that, certainly for those that are at later stages of their life or have been through several years of casual employment and are starting to understand the toll that that takes on both the body and the mind and on the relationships that one has and on the capacity to be able to have the security you need to raise a family or to look after loved ones, then that shifts as well. In the first couple of years of employment, we see that many workers prefer the higher rate and aren't yet identifying the benefit. It's only when their hours start to be cut for whatever reason that they start to raise concern with what's going on. Or if a pandemic comes along, I guess, and it becomes a front and centre issue. Absolutely. And we saw the mass impact of the pandemic that it's had on casual workers, whether it be the loss of shifts, whether it be the non-entitlement to JobKeeper rates, whether it be having to work when you're sick, all of these sorts of things have been massively impacting workers over the last year. Absolutely have. I'd like to just move on perhaps briefly to a couple of other things that have emanated from Canberra. One is the bill that passed yesterday, I think, to enable essentially the CFMMEU to break up into smaller component unions. Do you have any opinion on this? Oh, I think that it needs to be looked through the lens of what the legislation is really for. There's a lot to be said for craft-based or trade-based or smaller sector-based unions as distinct from the mega-merger unions, which get further and further away from members. And I guess that on one view, this type of legislation could be used by much smaller cohorts to splinter off from many of the other types of union mergers that have occurred in recent times. But this legislation is purely targeting the construction and general division of the CFMEU. That's all that this is for. And that we see Labor clamouring over each other in their desire to appease those parts of, I guess, the Labor Party and some parts of the CFMEU which have been failing to take a proactive stance on climate change and other things that are of utmost importance to the community to allow for a structure which will just take time, but it will inevitably come to a situation where the construction and general division is able to be deregistered. And so, you know, mining and energy might flee now, manufacturing might end up moving out of the CFMEU, and I think the MUA will probably be given no choice in the face of a deregistration process that's launched against the construction and general division. And I think that if anyone stands back and looks at what the construction and general division has achieved over a long period of time, 
and before them the BLF and the other parts of what were the construction unions. These are fantastic outcomes. Every summer we have to deal with hundreds of members. Last summer I was dealing with members at McDonald's in Dubbo West in New South Wales, young children, young workers who were vomiting at work, who were passing out at work, who were having nosebleeds because it was 50 degrees in their restaurant. And when we got Safe Work New South Wales out, they got two portable air conditioners in, which did nothing. And over the weekend, more workers quit and vomited at work. And Safe Work New South Wales just did not take any of the necessary steps. Young workers, they're having their brains fried at McDonald's. Construction and general division of the CFMU would never put up with that kind of behaviour. And they've implemented some fantastic structures to put in place safety at the workplaces of their members. And the big building companies and the Liberal government hate it. They absolutely hate it because construction and general division members are no longer dying at the rates they were and it's costing them money. And so this isn't just an outright pathetic attack on the construction and general division of the CFMEU and it should be seen for what it is. It's just really disappointing that the Labor Party, which is obviously no longer a party of working people, would jump on the opportunity to help make this happen. And I don't think that they're so stupid as not to have the strategic foresight to see where this is going, but it's grossly disappointing. And, you know, no doubt we stand ready in the years ahead to work with the Construction General Division and help them take up the reins. They've done it before and they'll do it again if need be when the bosses come after them and they don't have state registration anymore. Well, you know, I don't think genuine unions really should be looking through the prism of the importance of state registration. Lots of unions in very many parts of the world would see state registration as inappropriate. And there's some great union activity being done, including by unions like RAFU in Australia, by unions and collectives of workers that don't rely on those structures. Yep. There was a pretty strange announcement in the last couple of days about parts of the new bill that would provide the opportunity to subvert the boot or the better off overall test. And what's strange about this partly is that it only took a day before Christian Porter, the minister responsible, started to walk back rather quickly on commitments he'd made only the previous day. What's going on there? When I looked at the legislation associated with changes to enterprise agreements, there's very many facets to what's going on there. And they're largely about attacking RAFWU and what RAFWU has been able to achieve in recent years. So these are really about some things that the SDA and ACTU would have been hoping to achieve, but largely big business and some of the difficulties they face. The way it's reported in the explanatory memorandum and in a lot of the other materials is grossly misleading or just plain wrong. But there are very many facets to what's going on in those changes. By walking back a little on some of the better off overall test arrangements, they're still not walking back many of the other changes that are being mooted at the moment. And so there is a practical scenario where I expect the Liberal government and big business felt that the ACTU and the ALP are so compromised by the SDA that they're not able to talk about the experiences and the examples of a failed boot or a weakened boot. And so the simple point with that is, is that we have an example, a recent example of what happens when the boot is weakened in the way that Christian Port is proposing. 
and that is the way that it was applied for the SDA agreements in the period before 2016. And we know that millions of workers had billions of dollars stolen from them. And I expect that Christian Porter was thinking that the ACTU and the ALP are so compromised by what the SDA did that it won't talk about those experiences. Now, I think that in a practical sense, the broader union movement is not going to put up with that. And in a practical sense, these changes to boot would see millions and millions of workers from all sectors of the economy smashed by bosses rushing through cut price deals. And I expect he has to back away from some of those types of things. And what we'll see is we'll see examples. You know, I think Christian Porter's got to be live to the concern that if this legislation was passed early next year, there will be examples next year of how workers are losing money because of his new boot and how many workers will lose a lot of money and a lot of conditions because of these changes. And I think he's live to that as well. There's a reason why McDonald's wanted these changes made. And where's farmers? Bunnings, Officeworks, Kmart. They all want these changes made for some reasons. And those reasons all have dollar signs. That's it for this week. We thank Josh Cullinan for his time and expertise. Next week, the last package of our interview with Josh. Stay strong. been interviewed on 3CR? Your band played live to air. Have you heard your latest song? Groups like yours can now become 3CR organisational subscribers. Just $150 gets your organisational group behind Melbourne's longest running activist radio station. Get online at 3cr.org.au or call 9419 and become an organisational subscriber. Show your love, 3CR.
Yes. I Hi. should have given a slight warning <laughs> <laughs> at the beginning of that song because there was a naughty word in there that we should, that uh, escaped your attention yep, quite I clearly. I totally Jordan. forgot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I have been. Blue juice uh, does we, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we have been known to get people ringing up to uh, complain about uh, guilty as charged. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, so uh, anybody who's been offended, I didn't know. But anyway, uh, I just should also remind you that Kevin was supposed to be back this week, mm. but because uh, of a uh, time warp, everything went out of, out of kilter, and yep. so he will be back next week. Okay, uh, he hasn't uh, slipped off and decided he doesn't want to be here anymore. No, 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 no. He will be here next week, and uh, you're back with Annie and Jordan on Solidarity Breakfast on this Saturday, the first day of the hard lockdown for five more days. And so far. Yeah. Yeah. Not and too bad. Yeah, 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 not too bad. We'll see it's... how we go. And uh, on the line, we've got Don Sutherland. G'day, Don. How are you? Good to talk with you, Don. And g'day, Annie. And g'day, Jordan. And hello to all of your listeners. It's great to be back with you. Mm. Yeah. We've got lots to talk about. Oh, uh, yeah. we, we had a little bit of an introduction to the... Uh, what, what's it called? What's the bill called, Jordan? Uh, it's the Fair Work Amendment Supporting Australia's Jobs and Economic Recovery Bill. Um, I believe that's correct, Don. Just want to make sure I'm looking at the right thing here. Uh, by memory, that is correct, yes. Okay, good. Talk yeah. about uh, a it's snow job. It's close enough. It's also being called the Omnibus Bill. Yep. Um, and it's very interesting, I think, that on this occasion, um, the LMP government has learned its lesson from... Uh, the defeat it suffered with its uh, label work choices for very much the same sort of legislation back in uh, 2006, 7, 8. Um, uh, they've learned their lesson in not giving it a name so that we have a simple way of being able to discuss it in um, the public domain. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, Morrison was on the uh, press uh, uh luncheon uh, and he talked about it as being modest changes to IR which is absolute rubbish it's gutting the fish isn't it Don? Yeah, yes it is well it's all intended to uh, win uh, the uh, a majority of the public to accept that there is nothing to worry about with uh, these proposed law changes and this it's a very different tactic to what they were pursuing uh, the last time they attempted to do this and were defeated. I yeah. wouldn't say they were absolutely defeated, but they were significantly defeated. And, of course, they lost an election over it uh, with the election of the Rudd Labor government in 2007. And one of the things they're relying upon is that in those um, 13, 13 years or so, give or take a couple, um, that there are enough workers now in the workforce who have no memory or experience of that particular struggle uh, and therefore will not latch on to the dangerous significance for workers of what they are trying to achieve with these law changes. It's like they're trying to create a slave class. Well, that's the... uh, They are trying to increase that part of the working class that is in uh, precarious and vulnerable work at low incomes uh, so that that, in turn, 
impacts upon those workers who are in more secure work and on better incomes and restricts their capacity to be able to bargain effectively for a better deal. And above all, they wish to prevent any success that any small group of workers might make in improving wages and conditions from flowing on uh, to other workers. And also they're trying to change the uh, mean average belief about people's uh, rights and uh, to a, a better life. You know, that, that whole thing about work-life balance. Uh, yes, I, I agree with that. And I think the sort of, um, you know, the way in which all of this is being discussed at the moment in public media, whether it's mainstream media or social media, I mean, social media is now dominated by mainstream media anyway. Uh, but the way in which it's being discussed, including by most people who are making very strong criticism of what the government is trying to do, is to remove the agency of working people themselves in setting their living standards. Yeah, and it's really horrible. Well, I think that um, whatever the problems, and they were real, that existed with the industrial relations system prior to the changes that were really sharpened up, starting with Howard in 1996, is that in that award-based system built around conciliation and arbitration, improvements to wages and conditions could be initiated and struggled for by workers themselves. What is being talked about is, from the point of view of the government, on behalf of employers and on the request of employers, especially leading up to the last election, is to rob workers of any capacity to engage themselves in improving their own wages and working conditions. Yeah, take, taking away people's mm. sense of agency, as you said, and we should talk about the uh, way this uh, connects to the austerity budget. I mean, they're using the cloak of COVID to describe the... Uh, give people a sense that uh, it just has to be done. You know, we, you know, we have to pull in our belt. It seems like common sense. But we've just had the... Uh, um, the head of the uh, what's the Reserve Bank? Yes, Lowe. Bank, yes. Yeah, Low yeah. coming out. You know, like he's really seriously concerned about this uh, government's behaviour. Well, he, he's he's concerned about um, uh, two things, really. Uh, uh, as the head of the Reserve Bank. She is part of the architecture that has built the downward pressure on living standards for the majority of Australians. But he doesn't want it to go too far for two reasons. Firstly, because it, it robs the economy in general or takes away from the economy in general consumer spending power. And that is an important, although not the only, element in the overall operation of the exploitation of the economy. Um, the second reason is that eventually it's going to lead to 
unrest amongst the majority. They're going to start to get angry and they're not going to like being forced into poverty. So he wants that to be managed. And he's saying that the government has to maintain some semblance of a escalated fiscal policy as they have reluctantly done over the last 12 months and very badly done over the last 12 months with increases in government spending. And so he's looking for... He's trying to manage the system in the absence of effective management by the government or the trend to even less effective management by the government. So... Um, his, his call for an increase in, for example, uh, the unemployment benefit, what is now called job seeker, that is intended to kill off, reduce public focus upon the efforts for a real increase in uh, restoration, in fact, of the uh, unemployment benefit plus job seeker supplements which was, of course, in the first instance at um, uh, $560 or $555, $560 a week. So he's trying to, he's trying to neutralise public support for any effort by unemployed workers and other people, including all those people who are dependent on pensions and so on, to increase their standard of living so that it gets above the poverty line. Yeah, I think on on the RBA in particular, one thing that I noticed last week, didn't get much of a chance to talk about it, was that they had an expansion of the quantitative easing program. And my impression, you, you might be able to offer some reflections on this as well, but my impression was twofold in this. Um, obviously, quantitative easing really only seems to serve those who have high earnings and, and the wealthy class. Uh, while raising inflation, which is only going to put you know more downward pressure on wages, so obviously that 's not going to be good for the working class um, but my impression from this particular expansion was also twofold in what you 're saying for that the RBA is pursuing one set of policies um, and looking to achieve one certain set of goals against the government 's own forecasts and I was wondering if you maybe had any other reflections against that quantitative easing program. Does that come up on your radar as anything significant? Well, the quantitative easing is just basically electronic printing of money that is controlled by the process being controlled by the Reserve Bank, the unelected Reserve Bank. Yeah. So here we have a big institution that has a critical role in managing the economy that is not elected. Now, so it's, it's, it's basically the printing of money electronically and there's billions of dollars in various, takes two or three or four different forms, depending on, varies from one country to another. But the up, upshot of all of that is that in part it's intended to encourage employers or provide them with the wherewithal to invest in fixed assets that are productively useful and potentially can employ people. But the employers are not using it for that because they're not required to. Yeah, it's just money. They're using it to engage in all sorts of gambling 
on the stock exchange and other things to enrich themselves. Called, called, commonly called flim-flam. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the, uh, what we know about QE, uh, quantitative easing, is that it's not working from the point of view of the 90%. And it actually, is it designed to do so in a direct way? There is meant to be some sort of trickle-down effect that might flow, but there is precious little of the trickle and for the 90% of the population. But I want to go back to, you see, what, what that's all about really is a way of this economy or this society is crisis Riven, and every solution to try and sort out some aspect of the crisis ends up creating a new one. Because what's associated with quantitative easing is also longer-term debt. You're you're basically gambling on money for which no no productive uh, outcome has been achieved yet, and so it's basically going to lead eventually to new sets of problems that they will have to try to resolve. And, of course, their role is to resolve it in favour of the 1% to 10% of the population who are um, the owners of the major corporations or beneficiaries, direct beneficiaries from them. Yeah, look, um, oh, sorry, please go ahead. Yep, yep, keep going. I want to go back to this point about um, agency for workers. Workers establish agency. That is their ability collectively to achieve a better deal in society through joining unions and through engaging in struggle. And so we come when we come to the omnibus bill and then also things like what the Reserve Bank gets up to with things like uh, quantitative easing is to Rob, try and take away from people, uh, from working people, their capacity to be able to engage in effective struggle. And I think the disturbing thing about the reaction, so the ALP reaction, is that it is contradictory. It's, it is the ALP reaction, uh, as captured in Anthony Albanese's speech earlier this week, uh, is both has its positive characteristics in terms of genuine good on the paper at least. Yes, stuff about uh, yes, insecure work. In the night, they call some of these there is a a problematic aspect as well and that is that the rights that Albanese says that workers deserve are not really rights for workers. They are rights for the Fair Work Commission. Hmm. So everything is emphasised upon what the Fair Work Commission might do for workers. There is nothing in the speech that indicates what the new rights for workers would be in regard to being able to organise collectively and bargain effectively. Bargain with power, both at the enterprise and far more importantly, at the industry level. Yeah, but this, Don, 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 this is, this is the business about changing the meaning and the landscape that we live in. So um, now instead of the workers' rights, it's about the Fair Work um, Commission, right? I mean, 
And then there's this business of the LNP government consistently going on about the uh, common denominator, the bottom bottom uh, component of our society is business, not the citizenry, but business. Well, uh, yes, it's well. Morrison put it very well and very honestly. Really, he said that all, everything the government was about was a business-led recovery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's he's what a bullshit artist. And so, and so, he's not being dishonest or disingenuous about that. That's what he said. Everything would be about, and that's what he is attempting to deliver because that's what business asked him to do in the lead up to the election. So the omnibus bill should not be a surprise to anyone. No. It's what essentially it is what the business uh, organisations were asking Morrison to do in the lead-up to the 2019 election. So what you're saying tough. is so what you're saying is that the working class and people in general need to person up and not be confused about what is important and, in, and required for their well-being. And it's not just that fat cats and businesses uh, feel like they can, they can drive faster cars or have bigger houses. Well, the um, uh, the position for Australia's working class, ninety, you know, eighty five, ninety percent of the population, is very serious. Yeah. And, and uh, in fact, we have, I think, uh, coming up. March is a very interesting month. Uh, on uh, March the thirty first, of course, we have the um, uh, that's the deadline. That's the day on which uh, job seeker falls back to uh, the, the old new start allowance. This is the unemployment benefit of, of about $40 a day. That's the, that's the current intention of the government. Uh, and uh, the, that, that it, it, in other words, it goes from about $50, just over $50 a day to $40 a day, having been at above the poverty line at the beginning of the pandemic with the introduction of the Job Seeker Supplement. So what we have is the government, as a matter of policy, deliberately pushing more Australians into poverty. Yeah. And for many, it will be desperate. Poverty. And we're talking about children and, here, yeah, not just the and adults. Including children. And in which those many of those people who are living in those circumstances will then be dependent upon people who are in wages on precarious work or, in some cases, more secure work. And therefore, that puts doubt... That means that the standard living for bigger parts of the population... Many, many workers on wage work Will providing a will be providing a portion of their wages to another family member or friend to help them get by. And what you're really saying is they normalize. They want to normalize a a a, a, a ship that's crumbling. You know, that's got holes in it. The the, the the solution for their problems, the crisis in the economy, which is. Uh, in significant part, all about a problem with profitability, even though profits are going up. There is a problem, almost certainly, with profitability. And the only way they can do that is to increase the 
overall or social rate of exploitation, which is not just in the industrial wage, but the overall uh, joining together of the social wage and the industrial wage. Yeah, my, my, my reflection for that was actually that more of the Australian GDP is being pegged towards company profit as opposed to wages and consumer spending. It would look really good, you know, for the government to suddenly turn around and say, look at our GDP, you know, we're, we're growing so much as an economy when in reality we're, we're struggling. Yeah, yeah, it's purely for the profit margin. Well, we... Well, uh, we, we haven't enough time to get into it, and we shouldn't today. No, of course, of course. Um, look, but, uh, but, 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 yes. But, but let, let, let me confirm. The, uh, the proportion of profits relative to wages in the GDP is increasing, and that's how it's normally talked about even by, conservative, uh, by progressive economists. That is the labour share versus the profit share. And the profit share is increasing relative. But what really that is, is a measure of the rate of exploitation. Mm. And the rate of exploitation of the Australian workforce overall is at very, very high levels. And that is reflected not just in government policy, but on the fact that there is very little fair income class struggle going on. There is beneath the surface efforts here and there of workers to struggle for a better deal but they are sporadic and uncoordinated and they are certainly not uh, at a level that is required to uh, reverse that situation so the rate of exploitation is very high and that is actually essential if employers from the point of view of employers now what do we do about it now uh this is where I come back to March. Uh, so March 31, we have massive impoverishment happening. Both uh, the Reserve Bank and some other conservative commentators are saying the government must increase the unemployment benefit. It must increase job seeker. Their purpose is to have, as I've said before, to increase it so that it neutralises a growing struggle based on anger, a growing struggle to uh, pursue the maintenance of the job seeker supplement on a permanent basis. That is, that is to have unemployed people living above the poverty line and living in dignity and not policed by private sector corporations on a day-to-day basis. So, so you're saying that this is a tactical move in the sense that, I mean, obviously it's going to have a really positive move for the individuals as well as their families, as well as the society we live in, but it actually is a strategic move in the fight for workers' rights. Uh, the, the, the struggle to raise the unemployment benefit is interacts with the struggle over wages and and working conditions overall. There is an interact. They are interdependent. The more impoverished the unemployed are, the more desperate most of them will be for work. And that means that there is going to be real downward pressure on the capacity of workers who are in work to struggle for better wages and conditions. The two interact with each other. And so it's in the interest of wage workers to join their unions and then through their unions to pursue 
industry claims and associated with that to support the efforts of unemployed workers and their organisations to raise the unemployment benefit to um, uh, around $560 um, a week. Now, uh, or $550 a week. The demand is for $550. That's the, that's the position that's emerging, and I'd like to finish on that in a moment. The, the other part of, of March, of course, is that on March 26th, the, uh, it is the deadline date for submissions to the annual wage review. And your listeners would have heard me before on this. The annual wage review is the single most important decision every year that sets living standards for low-income workers who are in wages. Low-income workers, the annual minimum wage is about $9.70 an hour, or about, um, if I remember correctly, uh, about $753 a week. Um, that is um, uh, uh, nowhere near where it needs to be. Yeah. Uh, and the submissions will come in from the employers, from some other organisations like ACLOS, and, of course, the Australian Council of Trade Unions on behalf of all unions, although probably one or two unions will make their own submissions also. And we should continue talking about this. It's a this in this whole process of wage setting for at the minimum levels, at the lowest levels, the lowest legal minimum wage. It defines it's the it's the benchmark for defining wage theft, apart from anything else. But it's a it, it operates within the broken rules of the current Fair Work Act. So it's a very stilted process. That means that in any development of strategy, the big decision for workers and their unions is how much do they wish to defy and how much they would prefer to comply with the Act. We have to finish. That's a fantastic so, way to finish. No, Don, we have to finish because we haven't got enough time. But perhaps yeah, we can invite you... Yeah, 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 yeah. But next, maybe we do that next time. Yeah. Do, do you want to talk to it? Do you want to talk to us next week? Do you want to talk to us next week because we'd love to have this conversation further. Let's start with corporate bludgers next week, shall yeah, we? Yeah, we shall. Okay. Thanks, mate. Bye for now. See you, Don. Yeah, he's right. Uh, we really have to go. Yeah, but, uh, absolutely. Um, thanks for being here, Jordan, yeah, on no our problem. first day of lockdown. Yep, fun. I'm going to go home and um, not come out for another five days. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> me, me too. Yeah. Anyway, we'll finish with a song called End Credits. Perfect. That's it. See you later, Annie.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.